Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Kyle Marcotte, who has an inspiring story because he's been able to achieve a ton in his real estate career by the age of 21. So you're going to learn a lot about his ability to overcome obstacles, even as a young investor. So Kyle, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem at all. I'm really excited to uh, let you share your story today. And uh, and uh, I know you've got an inspiring one. So I'm just going to do a little bit of a brief intro before I let you get going here. But um, So Kyle is a 21-year-old multifamily syndicator. While still a student athlete at UC Davis, Kyle was able to syndicate two multifamily apartment buildings. These two deals totaled 119 units and are valued at over $5.5 million. So Kyle, I mean, it's, it's really impressive to hear what you've done uh, so quickly at, and at such a young age. So could you tell a little bit about your story and, and how you got involved with real estate? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I was a student at UC Davis. I was playing Division One soccer there um, and studying pre-med. I just realized that I didn't really have any free time and that I was giving my time to a lot of other people. And even though I was doing the prescribed correct thing to be doing with my life, going to school, getting a degree, yada, 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 checking the boxes, um, I started to realize that I was trading too much of my time and that I wasn't really enjoying life very much and that I needed to find something to where I could start to you know, scale out of something and, and allow myself to make income independent of my time. And I actually ended up reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad midway through my sophomore year of uh, college at like the perfect time where I was extremely not happy with my current situation and looking for something else. And that book taught me all about, you know, money independent of your time and real estate, passive income and things like that. And I just really dove in. And for the next, you know, number of months, I just studied basically all day real estate and then joined a local meetup and worked my way up into being a speaker at the meetup and then slowly kept grinding and grinding and joining a joined an education group uh, with Jake and Gino. And then I actually, before I got my first deal, I was, I decided to unenroll and drop out. And uh, that was really difficult because I had to tell, you know, all the people in my life that I wasn't going to move forward with this school thing. And, and everyone was, you know, Oh, you've been pursuing soccer since you were a kid. Why are you not like doing this anymore? And I was, I was like, I'm not happy, you know, and I don't need, I'm not beholden to the person I was yesterday. I want to be able to grow and change and become the person that I want to be in the future. So I took the big leap of faith. And then six months, uh, six months later, it ended up paying off. I met a partner and we did 107 unit in Louisville. And, and then, you know, it was kind of like, Oh, see, I told you so moment, but it definitely took this weird six month limbo phase where no one believed in me. And I didn't really even believe in myself at times. And uh, I learned quite a bit about life and about myself in that six month time frame story. Um, you talked a little bit about um, reading the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I hear that over and over again, and I'm sure you have as well. Um, it's a very common book. It's kind of the gateway for people to get introduced to the concept of passive income, building wealth, acquiring real estate, income producing assets. Um, was there somebody in your life or what was it that that book, like somehow you were given it or somebody told you about it into that story with anybody. So I kind of want to hear what was it that uh, attracted you to that book and, and got you started? 
Yeah, of course. It's a great question. So my, I actually grew up lower middle class. My, my dad cleaned pools and my mom was a yoga teacher. So we didn't really have any financial education in the family. And uh, that I didn't really, no one really showed me the book. I was actually just super frustrated. And I, I remember Googling basically like, you know, best investing books and then got lucky that that happened to be on the top of the list. And then from there ordered it on Amazon came the next day. Um, and then read it in literally one day. It was like insane. And then from there, I've read basically a book a week for, I mean, even till today, which is about two years later or a year and a half later. So uh, it really just opened my mind. And it just, like you said, it it opens this door for your brain because you used to think like, oh, I got to clock in and and I got to spend eight hours at work. I got to do this thing. And then when I'm 60, like, you know, then I can finally relax instead of saying like, I can actually just like surrender or sacrifice the next three years of my life and build some sort of an asset base. And then from there, you're going to be able to have that residual income, a residual income, and you should be able to fund the rest of your life or at least the majority of your life as you continue to build that base. But you really don't have to continue to run in this forever. You know, you can get out of there. Right. No, that's a great point. And, and I really feel like, I mean, the concepts, it, it, it introduces the concepts to people. It doesn't really give the how to in, in the detailed steps on how to do it but it kind of opens your mind. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad does that by just kind of giving those concepts on, on residual income, passive income, owning assets and not liabilities. So it really is um, that gateway to opening your mind. But you read the book, what, what was the next step? So did it kind of trigger like real estate is the way from that book or was it, okay, now I know that I need to buy assets and get passive income. Um, what triggered it to be real estate and how did you develop that education required to actually go down that road of real estate? Um, so it actually triggered me just into real estate first. I, again, I understood the passive income thing, but I didn't fully grasp it yet. I think that takes a little bit of time, but I initially just started reading every book I could get a hold of on real estate, listening to all the podcasts, you know, bigger pockets, everything like that. Um, and I started the wholesaling company out of my dorm room and that was pretty successful, but I was still realizing that, you know, all the advertising and all of the cold calling and everything like that to set up a wholesaling business is still a job. You're not really able to scale out of it very well. So I realized like, Hey, um, all I did was just kind of give myself a new job, like take my time in a different way. I haven't really fixed the problem. I've just given myself a new one. So then I started to read, you know, on bigger pockets more and more, you get exposed and people start to say, uh, well, you know, multifamily is a thing and you can scale out of it and it's large enough to where the income can support an on-site manager and you can actually hire people to run the property rather than you having to do all this legwork. So I got really interested in that because I was like, okay, this is the answer to my prayers. This is exactly what I need. Um, and then from there, I joined an education group um, with Jake and Gino and ended up going to an event that they had and met a partner there. And that's how I did both the first deals with partners in that group. So it's been a uh, huge, and I just highly, uh, advise people to get involved in some sort of a group so that you can talk to people who are also looking at deals and you can kind of hone your knowledge and also learn um, some real like examples of life, like life examples of deals that have gone wrong or right, because the books are great. They give you the general concept and you can understand it from the, the thousand feet view. But when you actually start to talk to people who are experienced and who do real estate full time, it's, it completely changes your uh, level of learning. Right. So it sounds like you, understood that multifamily was the way to go pretty quickly. And I know you mentioned there you had a wholesaling business. I'm not sure how long you, you went with that before you made that transition. But the great thing is you found multifamily very quick and at a young age, and you've already accomplished so much. And you also just mentioned here Jake and Gino program um, and getting educated with them and partnering up within that group. Um, I, I'm aware of who they are, and I, I kind of know their their 
you know, have a big influence in this real estate investment community. Investors might not be aware of who they are. So could you talk about who the group is, who Jake and Gino are, and, and what that program was and how it helped you accelerate your investing career? Yeah. So Jake and Gino is, uh, these two guys are from New York. Um, they're again, I like, I, I related them cause they're blue collar dudes. Um, Jake, they, I mean, they didn't grow up necessarily massively wealthy or anything. Gino owned a pizza shop in New York and Jake was a drug rep. So he's selling, I guess, pharmaceuticals. And they decided midway through that they were going to, you know, start a real estate investment company. And they, over five years built a huge portfolio and they are, they call themselves like wheelbarrow profits is the Academy. And it's essentially a group of like almost 200 ish people who all want to do deals in multifamily. And they also have like an education program where you go through their modules and, and they have a, a system called like buy, right, manage, right. And I think finance, right. And um, it talks all about how to go about acquiring multifamily. Because again, like I said, a lot of the books are great and you understand the concept of, you know, NOI and cap rating. That's how you get value. You add, uh, every dollar of, of NOI you add is directly related in the value on the back end. And, and how do you add that value? You cut expenses, you raise rent, yada, yada. But you don't really know the in-depth details of like, exam for example, in the financing segment, they talk about yield maintenance on loans and, and step downs on loans and just stuff that you would never really learn from a regular book. You kind of have to go and, and get that firsthand experience because they had just come from, you know, a pizza a uh, shop owner and a drug rep to multifamily. So they came from no background to have just learned it in the last five years. So it was fresh for them and, and they did a really good job with the education uh, program. So it definitely expedites your growth when you can learn from people who are literally doing what you want to do. And then also networking with people who want to also be there as well. Yeah, no, I really agree with kind of what you're saying there. Those, those books, the educational platforms, whether it be podcasts or books, there's a lot of great information out there and a lot of great content. Um, but at some point in time, like it really just gives that 10,000 foot view. I mean, depending on the content, depending on the book, but for the most part, it, it introduces you to concepts and you can, you can pick up the lingo pretty quick. You can identify what are the key metrics you're looking for. Oh, you look at the cap rate, you look at the NOI, you add value, all those different concepts. But until you actually surround yourself with the people and start talking, you can get in those conversations with them to start, but then it's like, okay. I got to drill down and really understand this as a deep level if I'm going to take my investing career to the next level. So it sounds like you, you went to the next step, surrounded yourself with people that are, you know, 10 steps ahead of you or a couple steps ahead of you. And then they accelerated your growth, accelerated your learning and really pushed you to the next level to even jumpstart you into that first deal. Um, and I want to get into that first deal, but not right at this moment. I kind of want to take a step back and even kind of look at, well, you took the risk of, of going from college, you know, everything's safe and secure. You're going to go the route of, of getting a good, safe job. You're going to have, you know, get a paycheck for the rest of your life. And then you read that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and let's call it destroyed your college career and your, your parents' hopes <laughs> of you getting a college, college uh, education. Get that motivation to take that leap to go full-time into real estate because, I mean, that's a little bit of a risk. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think that, again, this is something I get asked a lot as far as like the, having the courage to leave and things like that. It really didn't feel like a courageous decision. It felt like something that I needed to be doing. And I just did it naturally, honestly, and I didn't think about it too much. Um, but the one thing I will say is entrepreneurs are typically just really bad employees. And I could see in myself that I was never, I was never going to be a good employee. I was always very uh, rebellious and, uh, you know, kind of independent. And I didn't really like to listen to the soccer coaches telling me where to play and how to play and things like that. I didn't really like my teachers giving me assignments and I didn't like to plug in and kind of 
uh, do the the routine. And I actually grew up with a dyslexia, so it's typically a little bit more difficult for someone with dyslexia to excel in school in that setting. Um, dyslexia is an interesting thing because people think it's a learning disability, but it's actually just a different, your brain's just constructed in a different way. There's these columns in our prefrontal cortex that on normal people, um, the average person without dyslexia, uh, their columns are really close together, but on dyslexia, those columns are a little bit farther apart. And there's a book called Dyslexic Advantage that breaks down this whole thing. There's a lot of other differences, but essentially dyslexia allows you to see connections from things that are seemingly unrelated and kind of see a bigger picture and, and see things in 3D in your mind. But when you read a page in 2D, it starts to try to make it in 3D again in your head and it's really difficult to read. And learning was always a difficult thing. I had to kind of teach myself a new way of reading where you have to kind of read in these segments and you can't read word by word. Um, and that, you know, it's just not easy to go through school like that. And I just never really liked it. And I always kind of felt um, a little bit upset because my grades didn't reflect the level of intelligence that I thought that I had. So for such a long time, I thought I was a stupid kid, even though, you know, I don't think that I really am. I just lacked confidence because teachers told me that I was just not applying myself or that I wasn't good at school and yada, yada, yada. My grades weren't where I thought they should be. But uh, so it just, for me, it was, it was something like I was so deeply unhappy doing school um, that this became less of a risk and more of something that I needed to do. I didn't see myself being successful in any other way. So I had to almost like was forced to take this, this leap. I really, just didn't see myself long-term being a happy employee. Right. So you just mentioned there you were forced into taking the leap. And I'm, I've, I actually want to ask you about this because I've, I've heard you talk about it before in another interview where um, you talk about being put or putting yourself in a state of massive action rather than waiting and being forced into that state. Can you talk about that and how you put yourself into a state of massive action and not wait for it and how that's helped you? Yeah, because I, I think that people get into this um, lie that, you know, you can do the employee thing and that's not going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be an easy, steady paycheck. Like we kind of joked about it earlier in the show, but it's actually being an employee is not easy either, man. You're going to have to take massive action at some point and potentially you may get fired. You know, you're not in control of your position out of a company unless you are the owner of that company. And at any moment, you know, it's hard to admit, but at any moment you can be fired and then you're forced into massive action. You've been let go from your job. Now you have to go and find a new job to support your family. You most likely have some sort of a liability in the form of a mortgage or a car payment or your kid's school, yada, yada, whatever it is, you're going to be forced, you're shackled to that level of income now and you have to go find that job. So now you're massively taking action to apply for jobs on LinkedIn or wherever. And I figured that can happen to me at any moment. If I even take this safe route, safe in air quotes for, uh, for college, cause you know, you may be in the situation where you're forced to take action anyway. So I figured let me get ahead of this and I'm going to choose my massive action and, and decide how I'm going to take that on my terms and feel like I have some sort of a control over it. Cause I'm going to pursue something that I want to pursue and, uh, and not be forced to go, you know what I mean? Cause it's, I think that that's the huge lie that we were told is that it's going to be safe. It's not going to be safe. Life's never going to be fully safe. You got to have to take um, serious risks, no matter what you're doing. Right. And what was the most difficult part of leaving college and getting started? Man, probably leaving soccer, I'd say I'm telling my soccer coach, uh, thanks for recruiting me from Texas, uh, from all the way from California, but uh, I'm not going to finish out. And also it was a huge part of my identity as a, you know, a kid. That was the one thing I was good at for such a long time in my life. So I kind of thought I was a soccer player in my mind for a little bit. And it took me uh, a little bit of time to get over that identity and to realize you're more than just this athlete. You're more than a soccer player. You can do other things and you can excel in other things too. And you're worthy of success in other areas as well. So that was definitely the hardest part I think was just giving up on a, like a childhood dream to pursue a new dream. But I had to, you know, I did as, as I kept going inside I realized like, okay, this is, 
you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. Soccer wasn't for me. I could clearly tell that I couldn't see myself going any further. So, um, you know, you're doing the right thing, man. Just keep sticking with it. Yeah. And I mean, you were at a high level playing soccer and I imagine that would be very hard to quit and, and give up that. I mean, you probably had dreams of, of being a kid and growing up and playing soccer and, and going to a high level. And, and that, and I've heard people talk about it. And I mean, I faced this as well playing basketball growing up, but you kind of have this identity crisis where you are so involved in your sport and, and you put so much into it, you develop so much work ethic and, and that's what means so much to you in your life. And then you don't really know how to put that or channel that into something else. But I mean, it sounds like the transition was smooth for you because you actually found, Oh, I love real estate. I know I want to go into this full time. And you kind of caught it before a lot of people get to the end of their college career playing university sports or, or something like that. And then they're like, Oh shoot, what now? Right. But I mean, you just caught it before most people do. And you're like, well, I know I'm now passionate more passionate about real estate than I am about um, going to get this degree that I don't really see the value in at right now at this point when I could go in and start my own business or get involved in real estate investing right off the bat and get it a jump start on everybody else. Um, could you talk about maybe some practical examples of, of how you've taken massive action aside from obviously uh, leaving college? Is there any other examples or tips that you can have for, for how you yeah, that's kind of how what I do in almost every area of my business and life at the moment. So for example, on social media, a lot of people post one time a day or one time a week. I try to post 10 times a day, um, especially on LinkedIn. I try to post every hour um, of the day that I can. And uh, I try to record a podcast every single day. So these are massive action steps. And then also with broker reach out, I have a, a rolling uh, spreadsheet of brokers who I contact on a biweekly basis and they're getting those emails automatically. Um, and I'm, I'm reaching out to every broker in Austin, regardless of their specialty, um, as long as they're commercial, obviously. And, uh, and you know, you can get that list on LoopNet directory and I've done that and compiled it. And those people are going to get emails from me on a biweekly basis. And that's how I ended up getting um, a lot of the leads that I've gotten. And then also in, uh, in when I first started in the meetup space in the local meetup in Sacramento, I actually, just came as a guest, introduced myself, and then second time brought a friend, third time started asking if I could check people in and, and clean up afterwards, you know, and these meetups are ending at nine. And, and at the time, you know, you got to wake up early and, and get back on the grind, but you got to just continue to, to take that massive action. And after several weeks of like helping the guy clean up and checking people in and taking the name tags down, then I was able to ask him because I'd added enough value. Could I speak on stage about multifamily for 10 to 15 minutes and that kind of that massive action led me to have the opportunity to jumpstart my career and start to be in a speaking role viewed more as an expert. Um, so yeah, I think that you have to take massive action in everything that you approach. If you really want to see massive results, like if you're, if you're only looking for average results, uh, well, it really is. It's a, it's a one-to-one -one ratio, right? The amount of effort you put in is typically the amount of results you're going to get out. So if you want massive results, you kind of have to take massive action. Right. Right. So can you talk about, I mean, this all kind of ties into massive action, but I mean, from the mindset of actually, going bigger is actually more beneficial, especially in this multifamily space. Um, can you talk about that? You know, if somebody's looking at it, trying to get their foot in the door into multifamily, they may, maybe they skip the step of single family. Now they're thinking multifamily and they're like, oh, maybe I should go into this fourplex or this 20 unit or this uh, 15 unit, whatever it is. Um, can you actually talk about the benefits of thinking bigger and going for, let's say hundred units plus, I mean, that's what your, your first deal was. Can you talk about the benefits of that? Yeah, there's a huge benefit to going bigger. 
it actually is, it's harder on the acquisition end, but it becomes much easier for the five to seven years that you hold it if you go bigger. So the 107 unit deal that we, uh, that we have under contract or that we own is actually takes about an hour a week to manage because we have a guy on site and a maintenance tech on site and they handle the majority of the things. We have a weekly call where we talk about budget and, and vacancies and things like that. And it's simple and they're professional and they're multifamily specific because you know, when you have a bigger complex, you can attract the best management in the city and you can also make sure that they specialize in multifamily in that market and they know what they're doing. Um, and then we have a 12 unit in Atlanta, which is my other deal. And that takes way more time. And we have a single family uh, manager and he doesn't fully know commercial because there's not enough revenue to pay the guy. Um, so bigger companies don't really see the profit margin and they don't want to deal with smaller units. So it actually becomes a, it's easier to acquire a 12 unit. Sure. But it's way harder to run it. And you're running it for five years. You're only acquiring it for like about 60 days. So it's a huge trade-off, but if you go bigger, it's, it's actually way more beneficial in the long term. And I think that I'd advise everyone, if you can swing it to go as big as possible, because it actually does make your life easier, even though that's counterintuitive. Yeah. And you use the perfect word there, counterintuitive. I mean, it's, it's almost a myth where people think, well, I should probably dip my toes in and kind of get the feel of this, understand multifamily, maybe, maybe do a 10 unit, 20 unit, 30 unit. And then when I'm ready for the big leagues, I'll go to the hundred units. Well, I mean, like you've just said, there's actually really valid reasons why it's more beneficial and more scalable and easier for you to manage a hundred plus units, right? Rather than, I know, like you said, the, the acquisition phase might be a little bit more difficult, but I mean the same, you're going to go through the same moving parts as you would on a, on a small scale acquisition, but you're just dealing with a couple more zeros behind, you know, the, the dollar figures and, and it's same principles. You might need more capital, but that's where the whole syndication realm comes in and working with partners and working with passive investors. And you can really manage a, an, an operation or a, a hundred plus unit complex a lot more efficiently than you would even a single family home or a, a, a fourplex or 12 units. So that's really good information there. So now I kind of want to dive into a little bit more of your first deal that you completed, because from my understanding, you completed that while you were still at university or, I mean, I'll let you talk about it, but can you, can you tell a little bit about that first deal, how you found it? you know, a little bit about the unit count and some of the age, the value. Could you, could you go into that? Yeah. So I actually uh, was not in school at the time. I, I had basically stopped going to classes six months before that. Um, and the deal was in Louisville is 107 unit deal. Um, the purchase price was four and a half million. And we actually bought it thinking it was a 106 unit deal. And then upon inspections, we realized it was a downed unit. So it was actually 107 and the unit was fully plumbed and ready to be lived in. It just had a bunch of storage and it was, you know, obviously older. They still had carpeting from whenever the building was built. It was kind of not in the best condition, but we fixed it up. And uh, then it became another income producing unit, which was huge to the NOI. Um, and then also the other big benefit was on the expense side, which we realized immediately. That's why the deal kind of caught our eye was because their payroll expense was double the market rate. And when we dug a little bit deeper, we realized that, the uh, on-site manager was actually a relative and it was somewhat of a charity case situation where a wealthier owner had a charity case relative and he was in a situation where I, I guess they were kind of taking it easy on him, overpaying him, you know what I mean, as a family situation. And he wasn't necessarily keeping the expenses where they should be. And he was also being overpaid. So we realized, okay, well, we can, you know, come in day one and pay someone half of that, which is, you know, cutting almost $30,000 off the expenses. And then also their expense ratio was almost 60%. And in multifamily, on average, rule of thumb, it should be around 50. So we knew we could save quite a bit on the expense side going in. And that was why we liked the deal. But then we also had the cherry on top of the extra unit. So it ended up being a, a, a somewhat of a home run deal. 
Right. And it sounds like there's a lot of just operational improvements that could have been that were made on that property. So it wasn't much of a value add. There wasn't much heavy lifting or renovations from my understanding, or was there any other renovations that were completed? Yeah, we renovated the units um, aesthetically for sure on the interior and the exterior, just to get the rent bump of about a hundred dollars per unit um, on average. And that's, that was typically, you know, but it wasn't a heavy lift. There was no real structural issues with the property. It was all just, you know, updating it because it was a seventies product and there's still some units that are outdated as far as, you know, still having carpeting and having, uh, you know, old cabinets and things like that that just need to be resurfaced and, and just, you know, aesthetics. Right. And how you might've already mentioned it, but how did you source this deal and how did it come across your desk? Was it through the Jake and Gino partnership that you uh, program that you are, were involved with or how did you come across this deal? Yeah. So my partner, Eli actually got this deal from a Nashville broker because he was looking in the Nashville area and Louisville is actually not that far of a drive. And the guy said, well, I think we actually have a deal in Louisville if you'd like to come check it out. And Eli went there and, and, uh, diligence um, and sent us the uh, video of him walking the property. And, and uh, I liked it quite a bit. And I figured uh, I had been somewhat of a staple at this meetup now speaking, having my own segment um, after a couple months of, you know, just checking people in. And, uh, and I felt like I could raise a decent amount of capital for the deal. So I ended up raising about $600,000 for the deal. And that was my uh, value add. I helped out with the business plan quite a bit and still help out with the management aspect of it slightly. Eli definitely takes the brunt of the management and the underwriting. He was an actuary for Allianz pr prior to this. So he's really analytical guy, brilliant dude. And he does a lot of the numbers aspect and I helped with the capital raise, but yeah, he definitely, he sourced the deal. He found the, uh, he had a broker connection out of Nashville and that's how we found the deal. Right. And you brought up a point there where I mean, you hear it over and over again, real estate is a team sport and you found a way to add value to that partnership and you're going to hear it over and over again in this business. It takes a couple different skill sets um, from the that's able to connect with people, uh, the people person, the outgoing person, let's call them the extrovert. They're able to source investors. They're able to build the brand and have the vision and mission for the company and, and the business plan and oversee that. But then there's that person that is more analytical. Um, that's, able to underwrite a deal and conduct the detailed due diligence and all those different detail aspects. Um, and it sounds like you had that perfect balance in your um, partnership where your, your partner there, who's an actuary, had a lot of experience of looking at details, looking at numbers and assessing things. And uh, another point there is, listeners, if you, if you have that ability to be that you know, blend of the both, where you're, you can connect with people, you're good with relationships, and you're able to actually do the underwriting, the analysis as well, and you're detail oriented, but you have a blend of the both. Um, that's, that's a killer aspect to have in this business. And um, you're gonna, if you have that, look to apply it. And, and if you don't have a certain skill set, like say you're analytical and you have, and you don't quite have the relationships yet, well, you can still develop that skill set. You can still grow that, um, that ability. So it's, it's, it's important to look at both. I've heard it being called the, being an amnivert, right? Have you heard that word before? <laughs> I um, haven't. The in-between of an uh, introvert and an extrovert. So it's a, it's a good blend. But um, yeah, anyways, I went on a little bit of a rant there about uh, the skill sets required there. Um, so actually, you know, I'll let you talk about that. Where do you in that spectrum? Are you kind of more on the extrovert side or on the introvert analytical? Where do you kind of fit in? I'm somewhat of a blend of both in the sense that I definitely do enjoy the underwriting aspect and the analytical side of real estate. That's what I first fell in love with, but I've always naturally been an extroverted person. I'm not necessarily afraid of public speaking. Um, I've kind of like, that's kind of like a superpower that I have where I don't 
I've never really felt nervous about public speaking. Um, I always have been, you know, standing up in front of classes and standing up in front of teammates and, and giving kind of speech like things. So I knew that when I asked to take this 10 to 15 minute segment at a meetup, I knew that it wouldn't really be a big deal for me, um, which is definitely a blessing because I know that a lot of people are really scared of public speaking and I have a lot of other fears, but thankfully it's not in the public speaking realm. So I realized that, okay, I can kind of leverage this extroverted aspect um, and I'm a decent communicator as well. So I'd like to talk to people and kind of see where they're at. I feel like I'm good at understanding kind of how someone wants to be talked to because everybody's different. And, you know, some people want to be talked to in a certain way and some people want to be talked to in another way. Um, so I've always kind of had a good sense for that. So that's helped me in the capital raising side, just some of the innate things that I've come into the world with, which is a blessing, but I actually am more passionate about the underwriting side. So somewhere in between. Awesome. No, and that's perfect. I mean, that's the perfect skill set that you need for this business. And I mean, you can fall on either side, but if you're in the middle, like that's perfect. Like you, you want to be able to underwrite a deal. You want to be able to, I mean, be able to communicate that to investors, right? All that information that you're absorbing and that you're doing in your due diligence, like that is so much information that having that analytical side, you can actually go and, and talk to it with your investors or, or different uh, service providers that you're dealing with on a particular deal. So um, yeah, no, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so, and actually I'm going to go back to that. Even if you don't have the skill set in it, I mean, you talked about, you kind of had the ability to go out and, and talk to people and get in front of people and talk, um, say in a meetup. Um, but for those of you that might be nervous about it, that might be feel uncomfortable about going out of their comfort zone at a meetup or talking to people, it is a skill set you can, you can grow. And it's not going to be that every big public speaker out there has that skill set just born in them. They might have um, certain qualities that make them be able to do that more effectively or easier, but they're constantly developing that skill set as well. I mean, I'll let you speak to it a little bit. You know, when you go up in front of a meetup, like I'm sure the first time you did it, you might have been a little bit nervous. Maybe your palms were a little bit sweaty or your, your heart started racing a little bit, kind of thinking like, well, I'm so young. Who am I to be talking in front of these, these older people that are maybe more experienced than me? So can you talk about how you overcame that? Yeah, of course. And I mean, there definitely is always some trepidation when you're doing that kind of thing, but I wouldn't say that I'm deathly afraid to the point where I can't do it. But the reason that I think that I don't have that much of a fear for it is because I learned this on at a young age where it's, if you're on stage talking to a group of people, you can't think about you. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm young. It has nothing to do really with even my message. It's there to serve the audience. You're speaking for the audience. Your whole point of being there is an instrument of education for them. You're just letting yourself be a, basically like a radio station. You're allowing whatever your message is to kind of just be beamed through you. And you just happen to be a conduit. You're not really, it's not like, as if you start thinking, oh man, my hair looks bad. Oh, I, I didn't shave this morning. Or, oh, I, do I smell like BO or my pit sweaty? You know what I mean? Like you can start getting into your head and then you're, your perspective is then inside of your head and you just can't, you're not even there for the audience and your whole, your whole purpose of being a public speaker or being in front of a group or even being on a podcast like this is so that your listeners can get something out of this, out of me speaking. It has nothing to do with, with me speaking so I can hear my voice. You know what I mean? It has everything to do with serving your audience as a podcast. So that's kind of the minds that you have to have. And I've found that I immediately am less nervous when I think about how can I help the people listening rather than how can I look cool or sound smart or, or be impressive? You know what I mean? Cause then you just, you get totally in your head and you ruin it. Yeah. And yeah, no, and that's a great point. Um, finding out a way to add value and, and overcoming those, those hurdles you might have in your mind of being like fear, fearing, you know, sharing your information. But what you kind of emphasize there is you're coming on this show to add value to my listeners. Right. And that's important. And I, I think it might've been from 
Uh, I might be off on where I got it from, but I think it might have been from Joe Fairless's uh, book on uh, apartment syndications, where he talked about um, if you had were a doctor and you had a cure to this disease or something like that, and you know, a strange time that we're talking about this since we're in the middle of the virus, but um, you know, if you had that cure for a village to to be cured from this disease that everyone's um, got. And you, all you had to do was go in front of all the people and kind of talk about it and share it with them. Would you, would you go and do that? I mean, that's the kind of thing, like if you have something of value that you can share with people, isn't it a little bit selfish if you just keep it to yourself? So, I mean, that's kind of, I feel like I'm kind of um, thinking that's kind of what you're talking about of having something where yeah. you can share with your audience and, and overcoming the, the hurdles that might, you might face because you know that you're you're giving back and adding value to people, whether they be at the meetup or if they be um, listeners of the podcast. So I think that's all important stuff to consider. So I want to dive into raising capital. I mean, you're you're a younger guy. You probably were dealing with individuals that were older than you, had potentially more experience. How did you gain credibility with your investors? Um, I think the only way to gain credibility in my situation was just brutal honesty, complete transparency and honesty, because everyone can see that I haven't done this before. I was only 20 at the time and I'm only 21 now. I don't look any older than I am. You know what I mean? So people go immediately. Their first question is, have you done this before? And I get that question. Literally every time I'd sit down to have a meeting with someone, that would be the absolute first thing that they would say is, have you, do you have any experience doing this? Have you done this before? What's your background? And I'd always say, uh, no, I haven't done this before. I'm, I just dropped out of school. I'm 20 years old. But the thing is, I'm going to work a lot harder than anyone that you could ever give your money to. And I would say this over and over again. I, and, and everybody, you know, I would get people to, to invest with me because of the fact that I promised that I would dedicate my entire life to this. This is what I was seeing my future as. I dropped out of school. I'd left things behind. I'd put my, you know, my money where my mouth is, so to speak, because I'd given up everything else to pursue this. This was my only outcome. My back's against the wall. There's no other option. Failure isn't an option. It's just, can I push through this and I will, you know, stay up however late I need to, and I will drive wherever I need to, to, to protect your money and to keep your, uh, your stability and your wealth. And, and, uh, and I think that just being honest, I never tried to say like, Oh yeah, I have so much experience and I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'd always would just meet them where I was and, and just be honest and transparent. And what were the typical responses that you found when you had that? I know I, I heard you in another interview, you talked about it saying, you know, sharing your authentic story. What, what was the typical response when people heard you say, hey, I don't have all this experience, but I have this going for me. I'm going to work incredibly hard to manage your money effectively. What was the typical response that you heard from people? Um, well, obviously sometimes you get the response of, okay, that's great, man. Uh, talk to me in three years when, when this is a little bit more ironed out. And that happens, of course, you got to be ready for that rejection. I mean, I'd say it was over 50% of that was the answer, but if you only need a couple of people to say yes. And you just have to keep being ready to step up on the plate and tell the truth and not start to, uh, coerce people because you've felt faced so much rejection. You just have to stand uh, tall where you are and, and keep saying that, you know, if, if someone's going to invest with me, I want them to invest with me, not, uh, uh, you know, a projection of who I am pretending to be. Right. So I just continued to, uh, cause it's a five-year relationship. So if they're investing with a projection, they're going to eventually figure that out. So you have to be authentic. You have to meet them where you are. And, um, and I just kept saying it. And, and eventually some people were like, man, I, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I can tell that you're super driven and I want to give you a chance. And, you know, 
typically if you're a wealthier individual, $50,000 isn't necessarily the end of the world for you. It doesn't make or break your financial future. And that was the minimum investment. So I got a couple people just saying, here, I'll give you $50,000 to give it a go with, you know, if this works out, fantastic. You know, you'll, I'll have a long time of someone I'll be able to invest with you for the next like 10, 15, 20 years, however long you do this, cause you're so young. And then if I lose it, you know, it's only $50,000. So that's was a lot of the, the answer as well. But I think that you can, people start to, you know, things start to happen for you when you really put yourself out there. I've always found that in my life. And, and I just recommend no matter where you are, just go out and, and at least tell your authentic story to people and see what happens. I mean, it sounds like you had some great success in that first deal where you raised approximately $600,000 for that deal to put together, which is amazing. Fantastic. Um, so now kind of moving forward, um, you know, future deals, like what markets are you currently looking at and, and what do you like about those markets? So I'm predominantly, I'm predominantly focused in Austin right now. That's where I'm from, Austin, Texas. And we're currently under contract on a 90 unit. Um, with the COVID-19 things, we're going to pump the brakes a little bit and see where this um, all takes us and kind of prolong the closing period and, and, and maybe probably get the, dis, uh, the property at a discount. But right now I'm focused on Austin because of the tremendous job growth and the diversity of that job growth. And also, I like the fact that that job growth is predominantly in tech, even though it is diversified. You have educational job growth in University of Texas. You have most big companies that are in tech-based building their second headquarters here. Um, Amazon coming into Austin as well. So it's just a rapidly growing area. And, um, and I just see it being strong for the next couple of years as well. Okay. So you talked about Austin being a, a main area that you're focusing on. So let's kind of get scaled down even a little bit further into the, um, the micro, like the market, the sub market that you're investing in, even down to the neighborhood level. What are your favorite key indicators that you're looking for when you're qualifying these types of sub markets or neighborhoods? Yeah. So the first thing you got to look at it, if you're a value add multifamily investor like myself, you're looking for B and C class assets and where those are going to be located in the city. So typically that means you're going to be slightly out of the center of the city. You're going to be um, not into the full tertiary markets, but for us, we want to be a little bit north of Austin right now. And there's an area called the domain in Austin, if you're familiar with that location, they're building a new MLS stadium out there and uh, the domain's expanding as well. Um, some of the headquarters, it's, it's closer on the way to Round Rock, which is where Dell is. And um, it's, it's definitely a more up and coming area. And the beautiful part about it is that it's slightly more affordable since it's not, you know, in West Austin, you have West Lake and Lake Travis, which is a much more higher end community. And we're looking for the working class blue collar um, individuals who are going to live in a B and C class apartment. So that's the best kind of sweet spot where it's still affordable in Austin, but it's definitely the prop, the path of progress is moving out towards round rock and it's going to be more and more expensive. And, and if we can ride that wave upward then that's fine. Um, and that's what we want. We obviously don't underwrite for positive uh, growth like that. I'm typically very conservative with my underwriting and I typically underwrite for a flat growth or a negative growth, a slight negative growth, as far as the reversion cap rate is concerned and rent growth projections are concerned, but we still want to be in a, in a market that we can foresee uh, some appreciation um, regardless of if we underwrite it or not. It's just looked at as upside. What would you say is your top advice for someone who's looking to get started investing in real estate? Uh, the first thing I would say would be if educate yourself extremely well and know the lingo so that you can speak to people about it because people can immediately tell if you don't know what you're talking about based on the lingo. And I believe that's probably why the lingo was created or maybe it just naturally happened over time. But you can immediately tell when someone's not in the industry based on the way that they speak um, in real estate, what terms they use and things like that. So if you're really just getting started, learn the lingo, learn real estate, understand what you're talking about before you go out and network. 
Um, and then the second step would be to get at, to get to a local meetup or to get to an education group and become an expert in the space and an expert in the perspective, in the, in the perspective of other people. So you have to get in a place where you're educating, you're adding value, you're trying to help other people and you're coming from either on stage with a mic because that does a, a huge bit for your cred, uh, credibility, or maybe that's building a thought leadership program where, uh, you have a website that has a blog or you're posting on social media quite a bit and you're trying to establish yourself as someone who knows what they're talking about because otherwise uh, you can kind of get lost in the weeds. It's just another newbie in real estate who's you know, read bigger pockets and now wants to be a millionaire kind of thing. You know, you have to, you have to separate yourself from that group of people and, and kind of make sure that people know that you're, you know, that you're going to be an expert in this. Yeah. So given that you started so young in this business, You've got a long, you know, journey ahead of you and, and an opportunity to to accomplish a lot. So, where do you see yourself and your business in ten years? Man, uh, I like this question quite a bit, but again, I have to preface the fact that I am twenty one, so my perspective on a ten year period of time is difficult because ten years ago I was eleven. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, seeing ten years into the future is is quite difficult for my my brain at the moment. Uh, just given my age, but if I had to say and and throw numbers out there, I would say that I'd love to be at, uh, over a thousand units in the next ten years, um, and I'd love to start to be able to build some sort of a motivational speaking um, or you know like coaching sort of perspective business on that side where we can I can help educate people about financial literacy because I feel like that changed my entire life and it really isn't that difficult to understand financial literacy. Just nobody talks about it. So if I can be someone who educates younger people about that or even older people and just educating them about how to spend their money and how to educate themselves financially so that they can live their life how they want to live it. Because once you understand your finances, you can pretty much do whatever you want with your life. You have the income coming in uh, independent of your time. And you can focus on things you're passionate about. But if you just jump right into work and you never think about you know the finances and you end up locking yourself into a lifestyle and then all of a sudden you look up and you're 40 and you can't really, you don't really have as much control over your life as you'd like. Right now, I'm going to wrap this conversation up and kind of move it into our final four questions where you give short to the point answers. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? Um, I'd probably say favorite business book would probably be the E-Myth. I think that that's a great book for people who are trying to do everything in their business and um, it helps you because especially for people like me who are hardworking, they want to do everything, um, but you can't do everything. You have to start to um, delegate and, and be a better leader. Right. And uh, the quote that I always take out of that book, and I, lo I love the book as well, is work on your business, not in your business. Right. So that's a very important concept to, to apply when you're looking to scale in this in this business. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? I know this one is is uh, you're still very early on in your career in this. But uh, is there anything that you wish you knew starting out? I guess I wish I just went straight to multifamily and didn't waste a couple of months in wholesaling. Um, but again, I, I don't think I would have ever realized just how badly I needed to be in multifamily until I spent those 20 hours a day well, grinding on wholesaling and, you know, not making all that much money. You're just making, you know, five to $10,000 per contract, but you're spending 20 hours a day, you know, every day of the week. So it's just not worth it. And I love that you say wasting you know, those couple months in wholesaling because uh, <laughs> a lot of people might be looking Years old and they'd be like, oh, I wish I found out multifamily earlier. Or I wish, wish I didn't waste 10 or 15 years. But I mean, <laughs> you, you, you are so hard on yourself where it's like, I did, wish I didn't waste these couple months, but <laughs> that's pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, so what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? 
Um, so I have a miracle morning that I do. Um, as cliche as that is, yes, I do have a miracle morning. And yes, I do love that book. Uh, it definitely changed my life. Uh, I've been waking up, you know, somewhere around 5, 5 a.m. for the last almost two years and just doing my miracle morning. And people who don't know what that is, silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, and reading. Um, the savers, as Hal Elrod calls them. But yeah, I, I try to read as much as I possibly can in the morning. Um, I try to exercise every day. Um, and meditation has been a huge part of my practice. My mom is a Kundalini yoga teacher. So I grew up with that. I've been meditating since I was about you know, 15 or 14 years old. And that's been a huge part of my um, awareness and able to you know, put myself in situations that are uncomfortable and breathe through them and, and kind of uh, grow in that way. So I think meditation is probably, if I had to single out one of the habits, I would say probably meditation has been the biggest thing for me. I think it's a great book and just getting getting an early start to your day, uh, starting it out right. Uh, uh, it's a great book. And as as you say, it's almost becoming cliche, especially on these types of real estate um, investing podcasts where it's almost like the, the routine answer um, where you ask people, how did you get started? Well, rich dad, poor dad. Well, what are you doing now? Um, <laughs> it's a, a miracle morning. So it's, it's great though, but take the clues, right? Like these are all successful people kind of talking about this book. And, and how they've implemented Miracle Morning into their business and into their life to actually help them grow to the next level. So um, I love that. So what do you do for fun? Uh, for fun, I honestly, I like to work out quite a bit. Um, I do a little bit of, I've been training for marathons. I ran my first half marathon um, in December and then another one in, in uh, early February. And I'm looking to run a marathon later in this year. Um, so that's been something I've been interested in. I've always been a decent runner from soccer. So now I'm just focusing more on the running aspect and it's been a lot of fun. Wow. So I haven't heard too many people talk about running being something to do for fun. It's more of a, oh, I got to do it. I got to stay in shape. I got to run, but uh, that's good for you. Uh, really, I mean, Marathon will be a challenge. I'm sure you'll be able to do it with the mindset that you have. A little bit of a side story here. I actually did a, a half marathon back a uh, number of years ago now. Marathon coming up in my uh, city. And it was maybe, I don't even know, a month out or something like that. And I basically decided, hey, I should do this half marathon. Signed up. And I'm like, the next day, I'm like, well, I should probably go see how in shape I am, how how able I am to be able to go and complete this. And so I just ran as far away from my house as possible. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to get back home. So I'm kind of obligated to run this full distance, at which point I pretty much ran the full half marathon just short of it. And so I'm like, oh, well, this isn't too hard. And then I was sore for the next two weeks, but I could barely walk. And ran with it, no training, you just ran out there and did a half marathon, dude. That's not, insane. Not quite, not quite. So, I mean, I know you're in the States and uh, you use miles, but we use kilometers up here. So I think, I think a half marathon is 26 kilometers or something like that. Um, I might be off, but I think I ran the first time 18 kilometers and yeah, so I almost ran the full thing and I just got so sore after it. I couldn't train for the rest of it. So um, I had maybe a couple diff different times before the, the actual event that I was able to get some runs in before, but not, not the best uh, advice for how to go out and, and do a half marathon, but I did complete it. So, <laughs> um, Wow, good for you, man. That's just a pure grind, dude. You didn't even have a training protocol. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, congratulations. Be, Talk about mindset. That's awesome. Got to be gritty. I think I just threw on my headphones, put in some podcasts and, and uh, cruised, cruised away. Um, so um, Kyle, it was great having you on the show. Really appreciate you sharing um, your story and, and, and advice with my listeners. So thanks again. And uh, 
hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a real, uh, real good time. Okay, take care. Thanks again. To connect with Kyle, visit his website, www.kylemarcotte.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at kylemarcotte9. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.